Welcome back to the Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life podcast, the show that empower you to redefine the life you want and live your best life now. I'm Francine Belay, your host, and I'm super thrilled to bring you stories, inspiration, strategies to get more meaning in your work and in your life, make more money and be part of a movement to change the world. I am on a mission to help entrepreneurs and leaders to become leading voices in their field by leveraging what makes them unique to attract their ideal customers and make a bigger impact in their world. So, I want you to experience success in your business and also live your best life now. So today I have the great pleasure to talk with Mimi Kalinda. She is the group CEO and co-founder of Africa Communication Media Group. And she is the author on an e-book called Talking to Africa. She's passionate about giving Africans a voice and recreating the African continent narrative by owning their stories. Hi, Mimi. Welcome to the Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life podcast. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here and to have this conversation with you. (laughs) Great. So tell us, in your own words, what you currently do. Um, Well, I I lead a a communications group, as you've mentioned, called Africa Communications Media Group. And um, what we do here at ACG is strategic communications for clients, both in the private sector, in the public sector, and in social impact uh, work, um, institutions and organizations, foundations, multilateral organizations, And we essentially are storytellers first. Um, We're also strategists um, and we are reputation shapers and managers. Um, So those are the three things we do. We manage reputations, we tell stories, um, and we look at communications through a strategic lens that helps our clients achieve whatever objectives they're interested in achieving. If I am a fly and I follow you, what a day in life will be with you from the morning when you wake up to the evening? So I'm a mom of three kids. So um, usually my mornings are spent, I wake up very early in the morning. So around 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the morning, I'm up usually. 3.30? My gosh. (laughs) (laughs) I usually need about two hours or so to do me, to have my own time before my household wakes up. So I spend time meditating, I exercise, I read, um, and I, uh, I just kind of spend some time with myself before I get the day started. Um, and then I, uh, uh, you know, my children are up. And so as with any mom who has three kids, um, you know, it's about getting them ready for school, making sure everybody has what they need um, and is ready to get out the door and getting myself ready as well. I do school drop-offs every morning, so take each one of them to school. Um, and then I come to the office and deal with my other family, which is my team here at ACG. Mm-hmm. And so a day could be anything from 
I spend a lot of time talking to our clients and in meetings, um, both with clients, but also with my team, thinking about strategy and thinking about where we're going as an organization and how we can add more value to our clients every day and what the future looks like for us as well as for those people that we service. Um, and then, you know, and then I usually, uh, you know, go home and do some family time after that. Um, and, you know, either, it, it, and that's if I don't have a function to attend or something like that. Um, and that's the usual kind of very, you know, it's, it's not hugely exciting, uh, but it is exciting for me because it's very, it's a very packed between being a mother and being an entrepreneur, it's a packed 24 hours. Um, and then I also travel quite a lot. So I spend a lot of time on the road, um, visiting different countries where our clients are working. Um, a big part of our work here is about insights gathering. So our communication strategies are always driven by data and insights and understanding of the markets where we operate. So I spend a lot of time in country building relationships and partnerships with people to that end. Mm -hmm. That is really packed, of course. Uh, like a, a real CEO back there, mom CEO back there, actually. Wow. Um, so uh, how did you end up doing this job and creating, you know, this group, actually, this communication um, firm? Um, I basically, um, you know, I mean, I worked, I've always worked in the media space and the communication space in one way or another. I actually started my career, you know, 20 years ago as an on-camera presenter. So I worked on camera for a long time as a presenter, as a VJ, and all of that kind of stuff. And then I became very interested in behind the scenes and what goes into production. So I became a producer and freelance producer working for a variety of different um, outfits. And what really interested, started to intrigue me was how media was able to shape perceptions and particularly in some of our African countries, not just perception, but also behavior, uh, behavior and, uh, and narrative. So the word narrative first came into my, on my radar around the time when I was a producer. And I started to think really hard about the narrative of the continent and how much the media, both on the continent and outside the continent, contributed to building that narrative of the continent. Um, but also about you know, asking myself, well, if the narrative were different, what would Africa look like? What would the continent look like if the, our narrative was different? And scenario planning in my own head and with my mentors, etc. And so at that point, I decided that I was going to go really study this thing called media and how it influences perceptions. So I went to NYU um, in New York and I did a degree in media studies. And coming out of that, um, I became drawn to public relations and communications um, more um, formally and in the corporate sense, um, as opposed to, you know, kind of the production on camera side of things, uh, because I felt like that's where one could have the most impact on this thing called narrative and start to shape that. Um, so that's a little bit of a summary of my path. 
Yeah, so that just, um, you know, um, there is a parallel. I don't know if you know Hodan Nalai. Have you known her, Hodan, from Somalia, um, Mm -hmm. that I've interviewed as well uh, in the season three? Um, A few months ago, who sadly passed away in Kismayo. She also, um, you know, exactly your story. She was in Canada and decided to come back in Somalia and, um, you know, to tell the narrative of Somali country and uh, unfortunately was killed in Kismayo a few months ago. Um, And yes, which is like, you know, owning the narrative and and being the person who is telling the story because that is so important because if you let other people tell the story, they might tell something that you don't like. So you might as well own that, um, which is what I, I, I'm saying, you know, this new generation of African uh, who are able to do that and, um, you know, own our own story. We, this is a really uh, uh, great. So, what actually did you want to do when you were a kid? Was it something that you always wanted to, to do? Or did you have another idea when you were a kid or what you will do when you grow up? No, so I've always wanted to tell stories one way or another. And I didn't know necessarily how. I mean, you know, unfortunately, I think for us, our education system is such that you know, um, there are only a certain number of choices of where you can go. So if you're a really good storyteller, you're not necessarily exposed to the whole gamut and variety of different career choices that you can have. Um, But I always wanted to tell stories. And so what I knew back then was, well, maybe I could become an actress, but I was very bad at acting because (laughs) I, I was very good at being my authentic self and not so much becoming somebody else. Um, so that was never going to work. Um, I always, I also wished that at some point I could become a singer because I thought that that was a great way to tell stories. But every time I sang, people asked me, please not to sing. Stop <laughs> singing. Do not sing at all. So I guess I saw that as a sign that maybe I'm not supposed to be a singer and it's not my calling. But somehow I've always kind of been, my soul has been searching for a way in which I could express myself, um, not just for myself, but to help people understand their environment differently through the power of storytelling. I also think that storytelling comes very naturally to a lot of African children. And perhaps it's something that parents should put more emphasis and time in terms of trying to bring that out of them. Um, it's, an, it's, an, it's, a, it's an authentic part of our culture uh, to tell stories. From the time I was, you know, very, very small, I, you know, one of my fondest memories are of my grandparents telling stories, my parents telling stories, and, you know, and, it, it, and I grew up in the kind of family where children were not always pushed out of the room when stories were being told. Um, And they were included in that process. And I really enjoyed that space. Um, And so I think that's what I've always wanted to do. So, and I was also very good at arguing, I think. You know, it was one of my key skills is that I could find a way to debate myself through almost anything, either for or against Um, I could come up with an argument to substantiate my thinking 
And so with the storytelling and the debating, my parents concluded that I would be a really good lawyer. So when I finished, uh, when I finished uh, high school, I actually did go to law school here in Johannesburg, where I did three years of law school. And I was just very, very bored. Uh, and I knew that it just wasn't speaking to me. Um, and I knew it was for somebody else, but I wasn't as passionate about going, going into, into the law, um, into law as a career. Um, so it's been touch and go, but yes, I, I think I've always had an idea of what, what really speak, speaks to me as a person. Yeah, so when you were talking about um, you know, storytelling being part of uh, African DNA, um, which is true. However, as you say, so many people do not nourish that or do not see that as a really a great skill. Um, do you have any thought of how to encourage people actually in Africa to really nourish that um, skill actually, which is really part of the culture and, and, and the DNA, but you know, which is not seen as something really serious <laughs> or very critical. And then as you say, even your parents will push you to do some law or something different thing, which I've seen going on for you know, in many families as well. Um, not seeing that as a real skill. So any thought of how, you know, parents or um, in Africa, people can get encouraged to uh, be great storytellers and, and really use that in a professional way? Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think that you have to take a bird's eye view of the, of the issue and the challenge around storytelling. I think a lot of people, I think that a lot of us do not yet relate storytelling to a tangible outcome. Um, and I think that if you take a historical view, you would see that in fact, storytelling has shaped the world um, and even the history of our very own continent. The stories that we were fed about who we are and where we come from and what we can do and what we cannot do um, has had very, have had very tangible outcomes that we're still currently living with today, the consequences uh, thereof. So I think that that is perhaps something that we need to, um, I think from an academic point of view, you know, we, we tend to, people tend to talk about storytelling as a kind of airy fairy, you know, you sit there, you come up, you know, use your imagination and all that kind of stuff. But I think that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's incumbent upon, I think specifically our academics to do more research um, and to uh, bring it into the mainstream conversation, this idea that storytelling has very tangible outcomes um, to economics, to socio-political dynamics, uh, to the social fabric of our societies, um, to how cultures change over time because of story, the influence of storytelling. In my space in particular, one of the challenges that I've given myself is to work with um, policymakers and government, etc., to make them aware of the importance of storytelling at a bigger scale, at a country scale, because again, it has very tangible outcomes to GDP, to tourism, to being able to attract foreign direct investment into a country. All of those things are very um, dependent on the sort of narratives and stories that are being told about who we are as countries, as Africans, as people. So I think that that's probably 
the best way to to start changing that those mindsets is to really look at it whatever cannot be measured is usually discarded as being unimportant mm. and so as long as you are able to measure the impact of something you're usually able to make an ar- the argument that is important yeah, I think that is very important. I, uh, what you say is really get people to understand the outcome or the result that they can get and link that storytelling to a tangible outcome. That would be super. Um, so tell me, um, we, we discussed earlier that, you know, you always wanted to um, tell story <laughs> and you explore various ways to do that. Um, so, and do you think that, um, you know, um, is, is there a particular moment when actually you really, really realize that who you are as a storyteller or, you know, as somebody who really wants to spend the rest of their career in this, um, in this path? I think, I mean, there have been a couple of moments. Um, I, I think probably one that would stand out for me at the moment today as I think about it mm-hmm. is um, I spent, when I left school in... Uh, in New York, I went to spend some time working for Spike Lee's production company, 40 Acres and a Mule, um, and just observing the kind of work that Spike was doing and his team uh, with stories and being able to almost reshape how African Americans think of themselves and the context in which they live in the U.S. Uh, and how they can, you know, really asking them pertinent questions about identity. Um, And the impact that that's had uh, was huge for me. So I think, uh, and then also having a conversation around that time where I was asked, you know, well, do you really want to stay in, uh, I did a documentary while I was in New York called um, Re-Educating the World. And it was about, uh, Miseducating the World, sorry. And, And it was about, the image of Africans in, Afri- in, in U.S. news media in particular and the impact of that on the self-esteem of African immigrants who live in the U.S. And so I was asked at some point, you know, you're, well, you're doing great work. Do you think that you want to stay in this battlefield where you're going to try and be another Spike Lee in America? Or do you actually want to take up the challenge of telling a different story about where you come from from where you come from, from the continent. And so I chose the latter, and that was a defining moment in my career in terms of coming back with the mission of saying whatever people like Spike and others of his caliber around the world are doing for their own communities in terms of helping to shape mindsets and making Africans look differently at themselves because the problem is not always external. It's not about how people look at us. I think we really need to start paying a lot more attention about how we look to how we look at ourselves. And so, and, and having that mission of coming back and doing that on the continent, you know, where I'm from uh, in my own capacity, I think that that was a turning point for me in my career uh, because it was very much a choice that a lot of, of African in the diaspora, I think, are faced with, which is stay in the U.S. or Europe or wherever it is and have a, a pretty good career where you are or really or think about addressing the challenges that we face being on the ground. Um, so before I had that conversation, my idea was, 
I've got it pretty good in the U.S. I'm comfortable here. I'm happy to stay here and just be another filmmaker. So the mindset shift for me was there's work to be done here in terms of mindset shifting, and that's where you need to be. Mm, I love that. I love that, um, um, you know, um, that shift, that mindset, that, that decision to come. But I also know that you are not from South Africa originally, are you? Are you from? Well, the, I think it, it depends on how you look at it. I've, yeah. I'm originally from Rwanda and DRC. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My family's been here for more than 25 years in South Africa. Okay. So we came here in the early 1990s. Okay. So South Africa has played a huge role in shaping who I am. I came here as a teenager. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's it's a it's a big part of who I am. Okay, because my question was going to be, how did you pick the fact to go back in South Africa rather than to, um, you know, one of the original country that you come from? So that's, that's great. That's awesome. So um, in terms of um, what actually you are doing, um, when you look back, actually, you know, you, you talked about all these decisions, but what would you say that you struggle the most with in life? so far gosh just one thing that one struggles with um it's very difficult to pick um i think i mean i think that the most important thing is um just as i wouldn't call it a struggle necessarily i think it's more of a human challenge uh it's an existential question that each one of us has to ask ourselves which is how do I have the most impact in the time that I have here um, to really make a a difference and make shift the needle positively um, at not just a personal scale or a familial scale or even a societal scale, but at a much bigger scale. Um, I once read something where uh, Oprah was saying, and she has, she's good for having great quotes. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and she was saying that if you don't know what your purpose is, your purpose should be to find out what your purpose is. Yes, yes. Um, and I think that is definitely something that a lot of us struggle with, trying to figure out where is that space that really speaks to my soul, where it feels like I'm doing something important, that I have left my little stone in this big mansion that we're trying to build as humanity. Um, so that for me has been, it's a difficult thing. And I don't even know necessarily if it's something that you can answer by having a, a job or a career or, or if it's the sum total of your entire life that answers that question. So those are the types of questions that I ask myself every day. It's not necessarily a difficulty, but it's definitely a challenge. Yeah, I can relate to that as well. <laughs> I can totally relate to that one. It has been a, a long uh, quest and it still is actually at the moment. Um, so when actually you look at your back, um, your background and your childhood, how would you say that it has prepared you to be who you are today? You talked about, you know, being there, being always finding two sides of the argument and things like that. But uh, beyond that, is there anything else that also, when you look back in your childhood, has really prepared you to who you are today? Yeah, definitely. I think that firstly, my parents, so my dad was a diplomat, which meant that we traveled a lot when I was a young child and 
that played a huge role in who I am in not being afraid to go into new environments, asking questions and not feeling, um, I have no, uh, I have very little um, issues with embarrassment or feeling like I don't want to expose myself or, you know, I don't want to be judged on any level. So I think that a big part of that is having to throw yourself into new environments and sink or swim um, and come out on the other end doing okay. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is I think just my family history has always been very inspiring to me. Um, you know, my, fam my mom is from Rwanda. Her family's lived through two genocides, you know, 1959, 1994. And I think that there comes, with, 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 uh, when you come from a family that's gone through a lot of challenges, as many of us have in all kinds of ways, there's a sense that you cannot afford to just live life and pass by, you know? There's a sense that you need to do something uh, to make sure that, um, you know, the people whose shoulders on which you stand, their struggle wasn't for nothing. Mm. Um, and that, so, so that sense has always been with me, I think, like I told you, I, I, I learned about life at my grandmother's feet. Um, and she would tell these stories about leaving Rwanda in the midst of all this chaos and her husband being killed and, and all of these really um, life-changing and life-shaping uh, stories for her and my family. And that has always given me a sense that, well, you can't just afford to have a life that has no significance mm. at all. Um, so that's, I think that, I don't know if that answers your of question. Of course, that, do, do, that does do totally, actually, because that's the, the kind of impact, of course. Uh, that's the, the real reason why I'm asking the question, because usually, you know, everything that we do has some kind of reflection to our background and what we come you know we have been through or saw and then we just want to perhaps address or make sure that it never happened again so this is the reason actually you know and everybody has different uh, kind of uh, as we say uh, background and um, you know everybody is trying to figure out something based on you know what they have lived in the past um, so when you think um, you know back in your life can you think of one of the toughest moments actually you had in life and some of the key lessons that you may have, um, you know, gathered from that moment? Mm. So I think that, I mean, you know, starting a business is tough. Um, yeah. That's probably, you know, one of the toughest things I've ever had to do to step away from my comfort zone and say, I'm going to go on my own. Um, especially being a mom of three children and not really understanding, you know, no, no outcome is guaranteed when you're an entrepreneur. Um, so I think that's, that's the first thing. Uh, this, the, uh, in terms of the lessons that, that has come out from the first kind of, you know, struggles of trying to set up the business, trying to figure out what we want to do, what we want to be, um, a couple of lessons. I think that, you know, I often do a lot of workshops around storytelling and leadership. And what I tell leaders sometimes is that a lot of leaders, there will come a time when you need to disassociate perhaps what you do in the organization that you founded and yourself. Because when you're an entrepreneur, sometimes they're very interlinked. 
um, and it's one DNA. Um, because you started that organization for a reason that's very personal to you. Um, and I think for me, the lesson is that there, within your own story, there is um, there's an outcome, there's an organization, there's a business, there is something that is deeply interwoven with you as a person and your story that, will, that can then be taken out of you and put out into the world to make a difference. I think that was the first one. The second one is that um, one should never get comfortable at and, and underestimate the power of having to prove oneself. I think sometimes, especially as women or as African women, obviously, you know, over the years, we've spoken about the odds being stacked against us, right? You're a woman, you're African, difficulty to get access to finance, how do you do this, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, there are difficulties, but even in those difficulties, we have the opportunity to mold our strengths and come out of it stronger on the other end. In every challenge, there's an opportunity to identify, um, to identify difference, and difference is not always a bad thing. And I think the last thing that I learned, and that this one is for me is very, very important, Again, going back to the whole issue of narrative, I often hear, uh, and I hate hearing, um, you know, stories about, you know, women don't support other women. You know, it's very difficult to, you know, find mentorship with other women who've done great things and et cetera, et cetera. And I think for me that is, um, I learned a long time ago that sometimes the uh, a narrative that is per perpetuated against a specific group of people for a long time ends up being bought into by that group of people as if it was the truth about them. And I think that with the world that we live in that is very patriarchal, people have been saying, and not necessarily women, have been saying women are not supportive of each other and women this and women that. And now we're in a place where women buy into that narrative about themselves. And I say it's absolutely not true. Um, the, the, the impact that other women mentors, entrepreneurs, and, and, and people have provided value into my business, other women, has been invaluable to me. My biggest mentors have been women. My, the people first gave me, let me put my foot through the door, have been women. So I just think that we need to be very careful about the limitations that we put up for ourselves by believing some of these stories uh, that we've been fed over the years. Yeah, I think that is so important that you, you, you say that and also based on your own personal story that, you know, um, and then also the organization where I'm, I'm, I'm working with at the moment, this is again some of the limiting beliefs some of the women had and they can see that now that is totally untrue. It might be, you know, like life, you know, some women might have not done well to other women but again like men also might not have done anything well to other men so but yeah it shouldn't be like generalizing and you know setting in stone that women don't support women and you know you can definitely say that this is not true and my own also experience doesn't show that is true at all so i think that yes if somebody has this kind of limiting belief they should really get out because some women fantastic women out there 
really empowering other women and you know this is beautiful to see actually um so tell me if there is um you think that is there anything in your life that you actually regret or having done or not having done earlier is there anything that you might say that well i regret having done this or not having done this earlier in my life Absolutely not. I actually don't regret anything. I think, I think there's, I've drawn such value from every single experience at every age. Um, that like, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm 40 now. I would never want to go back to being 25, you know? Um, and when I was 25, I never would have wanted to go back to when I was 12. I feel like I've really had the opportunity to maximize whatever it is I was supposed to at that time, I don't have any regrets at all, actually. Yeah, so that's beautiful. Now let's talk about money. Um, I ask this question often because I want to understand some people actually do what they love, but struggle to get money or enough money. And other people have a lot of money, but struggle to get meaning. So my question is, you know, this $1 billion question, how do we get to do both what we love and get paid well for it. Do you have any perspective on that? Um, well, that's a good question. I think, I don't know if this will provide perspective, but it's, um, I recently spoke on a panel around entrepreneurship and I was saying that sometimes um, I think there's this glamorization of entrepreneurship, right? Like, especially on the continent, obviously it's one of the biggest ways to get out of poverty. We need to support entrepreneurs on the continent. That's absolutely, uh, it's, it's a non-debate. Um, however, we need to also stop glamorizing the idea of entrepreneurship because I think we're not doing, a, we're doing a great disservice to those who are gonna follow, follow this path. And I always tell the story of me starting this business where I had a job when I was, when I was starting ACG and I had a job for a long time while I was starting uh, working on ACG. It wasn't necessarily the most wonderful job that I wanted to have uh, for the rest of my life, but it was a great starting point to building my own thought leadership, to positioning myself and to fend for me and my family and put food on the table while I was building this business. And so I think that going back to your question, I think it's relative. You need to give, there's a give and take. Um, so you could be doing something that you really love, but also doing something that you don't love so much to support to, uh, you know, your quest to do what you really love. Um, so I think that, you know, we need to get away from this glamorization of, 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 of the workplace um, and that we, we do need to understand that it's a give and take and you have to make some sacrifices to make it work sometimes, you know? Yeah, yeah. So that's great. I love the, the it's a great perspective. And I think that, you know, it's a very, um, a wise one to really understand that, you know, it, it, there is like a give and take. So, you know, it, you might not find everything in one place, uh, but, you know, you can supplement that or, you know, find something, um, the, the, the second element that you are looking for in another place. This is why I call that a billion dollar question. <laughs> um, so now let's talk about the movement. Which movement are you leading or would like to lead or be part of? 
Um, I think I'm part of the of the of the narrative movement. I think that's my comfortable space where I play uh, in terms of the debates that I have, in terms of uh, the work that I do. So it's about narrative, and specifically for me, it's about the measurement of narrative, its impact on our societies, um, and how to own that and shape that in a way that's beneficial to to African nations. So that's my space. Mm, that's lovely. And how do you want to be remembered for? Well, I mean, I think um, I think for me, I just, I, you know, it, I, I'm not sure that I want to necessarily be remembered for anything in particular. I think that I'm somebody who, well, first of all, from a, on a personal level, I think obviously raising happy, you know, and uh, and happy and fulfilled children and joyful children. That's, that's my number one thing that I want to be remembered for. Um, and then the, the second thing is also to say that I probably just want to be remembered as somebody who identified a gap, felt like they had a solution to fill that gap and went ahead and did it fearlessly. Um, and I think that's what I want to be remembered for. Mm. So, and then finally, what actually did you learn from all your experience that you most want to transmit to others? Um, I think that, I think that we really need to master fear um, because fear is such a limiting thing. And, you know, it's, it really is sometimes all in our minds, you know? I had a very interesting conversation with someone when I was first launching the business. And like I told you before, I had a job at the same time. And so with everybody, you know, every entrepreneur who's doing both things, there comes a time when you need to choose. And, you know, do you either go full-time into entrepreneurship or do you keep this balance? But you can't serve two masters at the same time, essentially. So there came a point when uh, I needed to choose and I was very afraid because I said, well, what if this fails and my family and I don't know what would happen. And they had me do this exercise of what's the worst that could happen, right? Mm -hmm. What's the absolute worst if things were to fall apart completely, what would be the worst thing that could happen? And it ended up, it turned out that I have a lot of family, you know, I have a huge uh, family. And, um, and so the worst that could happen would, would have been, I lose my house. I don't have a place to live. I go and sleep on the floor of one of my aunt's houses or something like that with my three children. I still have my degree and I'm still the same person with the same passion. And it takes me a couple of months or maybe a year to find another job. And then I get back on my feet and life carries on. So the worst that could happen was not that I was going to die and be eradicated from the earth as it was in my mind. <laughs> the fear was so huge, you know, that, oh my God, if this business doesn't work, what is going to become of me? And so just thinking about the worst that could happen and tackling your fear because it's in a very emotional thing from a logical perspective, really, really helped me go for it. Because I think after that conversation, I was like, oh, that's all that could happen to me? I'm going to sleep on somebody's floor for like a couple of months, and but my kids might still get, will still get food every day, and like 
we're not going to die. That's okay. I can handle that. I can go for it, you know? So I think that just putting our fear in perspective is very important. And then I think the last thing is just um, to really aim for excellence in everything that we do. Um, I think that, you know, we talk about working hard and all of these things. These things are all very important, but excellence in what you do just makes you feel good about yourself and makes you stand out. And I think that's one of the key ways in which we can start combating this negative perception of Africa. Can you imagine if all of us, I keep saying, can you imagine if all of us raise the bar of excellence in every aspect of our lives? Um, you know, we would really have a, a, a continent that where the corruption doesn't exist, where, you know, our work ethic is one to be reckoned with, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, a mindset of excellence is an absolute must uh, on a personal level and on a continental level as well. Mm, that's fantastic. I love, I love, I love the exercise you did. And, you know, this is very important for people to understand because our fear are always irrational. We have like big mountains, but when we break that down logically and then we see, okay, what's the worst thing that can happen? I think that everybody should ask themselves this question. What is the worst thing that can happen? We finally see that that's not this big mountain that we have in our head. Very, yeah. very important. And your second about excellence is like key, really, in everything that we're doing. And as you say, you know, when we have that excellent mindset in everything we do, right? It is like, um, you know, the, the difference between average and being, you know, on the top. That is really brilliant. I think that, you know, those two lessons are fantastic. Um, is there anything that you do to get back on your feet when you feel that you are not motivated to do anything? What is some of the tips that you can share? How do you keep motivated and keep going even when things are not working as you want to? Yeah. I think that, uh, I think the first thing is having... Uh, having a long-term vision, but also being flexible enough for it to change along the way, right? Um, I think, honestly, and perhaps I'm wrong because some people are so clear about their future, but I don't think either one of us, no one really, really, really knows what's going to happen to them mm -hmm. ultimately. And you interview a multitude of successful people. No one can tell you, okay, from the time I was, 15 years old, I knew that I would be running a multi-million dollar, you know, whatever. So I think that having ambition is amazing. Having uh, a vision is important, but I think also being flexible enough to let life do its thing along the way is hugely important in terms of staying okay in your own mind when things don't necessarily go the way that you want them to go. Um, so that's the first thing. And then I think, I think the second thing is um, just realizing for me, it's very important to keep reminding myself that um, I'm a spiritual being first, a physical being second, um, that I am being guided on some level in terms of what I'm doing on a, uh, on a daily basis and connecting with that part of myself on a daily basis is important uh, because otherwise you get too stuck in the here and now and that's never healthy for anyone. 
<laughs> That's great. So tell me, if your life was a book or a film, which title will that be? Oh my gosh. <laughs> still, honestly, it would still be, it would not even have a title. I, I think we would need <laughs> Untitled book. <laughs> yeah. I think we would need to finish the movie and give it a title at the end. Oh, I love yeah. that. I love that one. That's, yeah. that's fantastic. <laughs> so is there, um, tell me what would ultimately be your definition of meaningful work and meaningful life? I think a meaningful life and work is one that you are, where you plug yourself into the bigger picture of the world right so it's 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 about elevating yourself from your own situation and seeing yourself as an instrumental tool for a change um, for humanity in general um, and and plugging yourself into the bigger uh, the bigger picture of of where the world is i think that's a meaningful life um because i mean none of us i, I don't think um you know, we're put, put here for our own benefit. Um, so I think a meaningful life is when you use the time that you have here to be able to impact the, the, global, the global dynamic. Mm -hmm. Any last piece of advice or guidance for our listeners to live a meaningful life? I think find out what a meaningful life means for you, first and foremost. There's beauty in the journey of finding out, right? I mean, I think that there's so much that's told about, you know, the destination and what it's going to feel like when you get there and, you know, the lessons learned once you get there. But I think it's important to remind ourselves that, you know, there's beauty in the journey of getting there and enjoying it. Um, so that, that for me would be my parting words. It's just there's beauty in the journey. Focus on the journey Take it one step at a time. Otherwise, you miss the moment. Um, and then a meaningful life is made up of meaningful moments. It's not just a meaningful life. It's, it's meaningful moments that add up to a great life. That is so inspirational. I love that. Meaningful moments. And there is beauty in the journey. I love that. Both, both uh, really powerful quotes, actually. Um, so can you share any resources that perhaps, you know, you've read or you, you've, um, you know, wrote yourself or something that actually you can share with our listeners, um, you know, to go further again in their journey of meaningful life? I'm loving this book that I'm reading at the moment. I was a contributor to volume one. It's called We Will Lead Africa. So cool. you can look that up. But they've now released volume two. And it's basically stories of ordinary Africans who are leading their own corner of the world in a very meaningful way, which is great because sometimes we feel like we can't make a difference unless we are world renowned and mm -hmm. everybody knows about our work. And that's when it becomes meaningful, yeah. which is absolutely not true. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a, that's an inspiring book that I'm reading um, at the moment, volume two of that. Um, and then I think, uh, what else would I recommend? Um, yeah, I think that's enough. I mean, there's two volumes, there's two books. So that, that should give you enough time to read. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so it's, it's available on Amazon as well? It's, a, it's available on Amazon. Okay, great. So how can people contact you, connect with you to learn more about what you do and your work? 
Sure. So my uh, my Twitter handle is at mkalinda. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. I spend a lot of time talking to my LinkedIn communities, and I write a lot, uh, blog a lot. So Mimi Kalinda on LinkedIn, come and connect with me there. Um, and then our website is africacommunicationsgroup.com if you want to find out more about the work we do. That is so fantastic, Mimi. I am so grateful for having this conversation with you. It was really a great pleasure to have you today on this show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I hope we get to talk again soon. Yeah, definitely. Thank you very much. Thank you. What are you committed to do today to do more meaningful work and live a meaningful life? The show notes of this episode of Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life are available on my webpage, francinebelli.com slash podcast with all the references and resources shared on this show. Whilst you are there, leave me a message to tell me in the comments what was your key takeaway from this episode. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to show your love and support, subscribe to the Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or the app where you are listening to this podcast and leave me a five-star review. It will take you a minute, but it will mean a lot to me and will also help me to spread this word and being found online. So thank you for listening to the Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life podcast, the show that empower you to redefine the life you want and live your best life now. I will see you next week for another epic episode of this season four. Until then, dream, act and make an impact. Lots of love.